gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. I think that, that, that flowers are something inherently disgusting. I mean, are people aware? Basically, it's an open invitation to all the insects and bees come and screw me, you know? I mean, it's, I think that flowers should be forbidden to children. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elk, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. You say that gender is binary, but what about the butchers and fairies? Have no fear, I'm what you call a gender queer. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. Yeah, the bureaucracy. You got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? No, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview one. It's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. What a weasley little liar, dude. What a weasley little liar, dude. Literally lying. Still lying to his audience. And that is the new intro of the new and improved live edition of the three left show here Tuesday night at 8 p.m. for the first time not for the last time I'm your host Dan Platt this program covers news issues and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left-wing perspective for the curious or the committed promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy discussing the means and ends of a multi-tenancy left that is of itself and for itself, not liberals. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, we proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. And then here in the studio, I have a special guest, my college buddy from downstate, that's New York City for all you upstater, upstaters, uh, Rory Evans. Hey, good evening, everyone. Hey, Don, thanks for having me. It is great to have you here. He's uh, pretty much politically literate, uh, and uh, we get along quite well. So otherwise, there'll be some good banter, but no pressure. Today, we're going to no, no specific plan as much as I have some religion-oriented stories and some food-oriented stories. Uh, but since I actually have a guest of, and, and I'm trying to learn from previous mistakes where I have a guest, but it's still just me talking, or I'm just still doing the reading hour that I usually do. These are more conversation starters, but we can also just banter around like real podcasts do, as I'm told. Uh, so anyway, so what, let's start with how do you think about the new intro? You, don't, you haven't heard any of my old intros, so you don't have a baseline of comparison. But what do you think of that intro? I think it needs work, but What's, did you recognize? And how many did you recognize those sound clips? Uh, I want to say maybe half. Mm -hmm. um, definitely refer I recognize the ants. <laughs> yeah, the one ants the, reference from Bugs Life. From Bugs Life. Um, the one before that is MLK. Yes. Uh, which might be out of place. Maybe it should be put towards the end. I usually have the more inspirational quote at the end instead of uh, 
Hassan Piker, a, uh, a Twitch streamer, who was talking about another Twitch streamer, you know, calling him a like, what a liar, what a yoke, bro. And so I just, I just, it's so funny. And, uh, but it needs to go like after I, but I'm not going to put a clip of someone like some Republican lying or some Democrat bullcrap. I'd probably stick to malarkey. That's cool too. Yeah. So I could put any kind of beltway malarkey and then have that clip of like, what a liar. But, but maybe I should start at the beginning. Like, is it supposed to be about me? You know, like I'm the liar. I'm lying to my audience. You know, there's uh, the anarchist cheerleaders. Uh, they're doing the genderqueer cheer. And, uh, and that's coming after Zizek, the philosopher, which is like an old clip of his where he's out watering flowers and talking about how nasty, they, like how dirty it is. But it's basically the mind of someone who thinks everything's degeneracy. Um, so it's kind of a joke on reactionaries or turfs. You know, it's like, look how disgusting these perverts are. You know, and he's talking about flowers. So that and, makes perfect sense. Yeah, and then the clip about free love bureaucracy is <laughs> – this is the context behind that. So that I'm one. giving the context now. I won't give it again. Is So it's from uh, the History Channel Time Ghost, or Zeitgeist, but it's Time Ghost is English for Zeitgeist. And uh, they cover like World War II, but also World War I and the interwar years. And so they're covering the 1920s, and in the early 20s, there was the first American Red Scare. You know, there was just the Russian Revolution, and there was a Red Scare. And one of the New York newspapers were writing about the horrors that the Red Army were imposing on on the russian and ukrainian other people i mean not just massacres but they're also setting you know setting up free love so uh free love bureaus and this is like printed in like as like things that scare the american public and so he stops and goes like free love bureau huh that's that's an odd thing they didn't call it soviet you know and and i clip down and he like he rambles a bit longer it's like you know is he, how does that work you know and so there it is so, so really free love bureaus, as in? Because free love was one of the things that socialists, like radical socialists, were pining for, or, or yeah, revolutionary socialists that were um, just socially progressive. They were for free love, women's rights, uh, access to abortion. I mean, this made you extreme radical, any kind of birth control. And free love was something associated with the, you know, left, the scary left. And so... Of course, you know the the Red Army is setting up something that has, like it's they're they're bureaucrats, they're authoritarian, but they're also doing free love, so a free love bureau. So it's a contradiction that like you have free love, and that it's also authoritarian at the same time because it's of, of the people doing it. It's like saying that, well, it makes sense to a lot of Americans to say like, well, Cuba is a dictatorship without knowing anything about their elections or how democratic or that like Venezuela, a quarter of their economy, no, a third of their economy is run by unions. Uh, another third is still private enterprise or growing amount in Cuba more so in Venezuela. But the point is that like, it isn't just the Cuban government controlling the economy. Like it's mostly unions. Now are the unions like the bad guys? Cause the unions are the workers. I was going to say, uh, for example, that, uh, definitely the Cuban regime, you know, has a history. You know, I'm not going to stand up and defend them, mm -hmm. but uh, our hands are not, you know, are not clean. Um, fundamentally, what we do is we use our hegemonic position in the international economy to cut them off from trade, not just from the United States, but from countries that trade with the United States. Yes. 
Anyone who trades with the United States can't trade with Cuba. And since, and that goes for shipping companies. And any ship that's going to go to the Caribbean is going to stop in the Gulf Coast. So it's basically, these are the new sanctions put on by Trump. But Biden, who supposedly, I'm told, is better than Trump uh, in many, many ways, all the ways, uh, has not lifted a finger or announced, rather announced, or said a word about lifting any of the sanctions. Yeah, um, yeah. it's political, political calculations. Um, there's some Democrats in South Florida. It's the ratchet effect. The, like the Republicans do what the Democrats can't do because if they did it, they'd look bad. Um, but what they can do is nothing, so they don't look bad, and that's enough to not look bad. But it also doesn't, and it's apparently enough to make them look good well, because it's by comparison. I don't think what Biden has done has won him any favors with the South, um, South Florida uh, Cuban nationals, Cuban nationals. Oh, yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll hate what the Democrats do because it's a partisan basis, not a matter of policy. If it's policy, they should be overjoyed that uh, Cuba is starving or their, their former country that they love so much. Like Mr. Worldwide. <laughs> um, but it's, it's truly it's a matter of like both ignorance, indoctrination, and class position of like, you know, well, we left Cuba, so so uh, forget them. Malarkey them. Yeah. I, I would also say that uh, for the free marketeers, they seem both to think that the free market can accomplish any goal, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, highways or, um, I don't know, schools, charter schools. Uh, well, Cuba has a completely a food economy that is not oil dependent. So it's actually not that they're starving. I mean, they, they do need to import some food or certain types, but it's mostly the fact that they can't import the equipment to distribute the vaccine they had to make on their own. So they were able to make their own vaccine because they can't import any from America or anywhere else. So they had to make their own and they were able to do that. Um, but they don't have enough syringes and other equipment and supplies to distribute it. So people are obviously upset about that. But it's like this is a call to end the embargo. Yes. At the very least, undo the Trump embargo or the Trump sanctions, since we all hate Trump and Trump bad, um, which he is, because it was bad. It was terrible. So if it is so bad, then why doesn't Biden use an executive order to undo it? Well, I'm answering. I, 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 I wanted to say that I think the best way, the best way, if you wanted to, the best way to topple the regime in Cuba would be to open up trade. Um, you know, we talk about how great the free market is, but people who say that don't seem to have any faith in it when it comes yeah. to, you know, when it comes to uh, matters like like, like, like Cuba. Um, yeah, I think that if tourists from the United States went there regularly, I think that if there's massive amounts of trade, it certainly developed a certain capital type economy market economy with the tourism and that's kind of what's hurt them is that the their economy has been squeezed by the pandemic like everywhere else because they did depend on some tourist dollars but uh to the effect of like well opening the economy would help i don't know when topple the government but it would mean a transition well fundamentally but it would also be somewhat under the cuban people's control and that's what they can't abide well the, 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 more or the, less. the fundamental thing would be information you know, in addition to the other consequences of the embargo, uh, they don't have access to high-speed internet, which means they there's no way for... They would if they could import stuff, but yeah. 
Right. So, 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 so we want to inspire these people. Yeah. We want them to, you know, stay in their same own as, country. Same as Cancun. But, but, but we yeah. sabotage their right, attempts yeah, yeah. to undermine the regime. Right. And then we complain about the regime. Of course. So um, I, I, maybe I'm off too far, but I feel that international trade, I've heard this from, 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 from economists before, I think international trade could it have a smooth. It smooths the hard edges of hardline ideology. That's kind of the fact of globalism, that the global capitalist markets kind of same same case with with north korea if we actually ended the war and, and the borders were more porous then it wouldn't be the hermit kingdom well i, I wouldn't cuba in the same and there would be more markets there i, I wouldn't be cuba in the same place as north korea um but i would say that you know if, if we really wanted to tackle communism well the biggest communists aren't the cubans you know, the, the biggest communists are the people we have a massive trade deficit with. Mm-hmm. So um, from, my, from, from another vantage point, it isn't that we're fighting communism because we're not fighting the biggest communists. Um, of late, there's been a you know, sort of anti-Chinese. You don't, you don't consider China to be communist, though. Well, that's what everyone calls them. When, when, when <laughs> okay. we say the communist the party, communist, we yes. don't mean the party in Cuba. <laughs> sure. We, we mean Beijing. Uh, but suffice it to say, there's the a... Fifth, the fifth international. <laughs> <laughs> I wish... I, I, right? No, not really. I, the Fifth International is like the network of communalist, you know, municipalities or something. That's the Fifth International in my mind. The Fifth International what? There's been internationals, which are like international communist movements. And there hasn't been one since the Soviet Union fell apart because the Soviet Union was technically the third one. There was a fourth one of Trotskyists, which... I guess the Green Party is almost like a uh, an echo of. Uh, so I guess there's the Global Greens. There's a network of Green Parties, so I guess, but we don't call ourselves the fourth. But you know, I don't know. Because it's not just trots, of course. A lot of, a lot of liberals and other types of progressives. But, the, but the, if there was enough, like, leftist parties actually working together and having, like, this, an anti-imperialist block that that would be cons- probably considered a fifth international, but it needs to kind of call itself that, that like, yes, this is explicitly uh, a socialist political alliance between various countries that have been screwed by America or China uh, or other, or any other imperialists, France or Britain. And, and we're going to have our own military slash economic alliance. Uh, I guess there's a South eastern asian one but that's that's a very capitalist kind of uh network and uh, but if there's a socialist one where it's like yeah socialist trading with socialists with socialist uh trading you know co-op stewardships you know not not capitalist ones that are going to put so much cargo on it that it blocks the suez canal kind of thing but but a responsible co-op shipping companies Um, the issue there with the suez canal isn't that it got blocked it was that they hadn't built any contingency. They, they just assumed that no ship would be that, would, that would never happen. And, and if you look at the map, you'll see that they're actually t- to the north of the choke point and to the south of it, they have two canals running. Mm-hmm. But then in the middle, they it chokes it gets, into yeah, one. Yeah, um, it was in that particular spot. In that, it still got stuck right there. Of course, cool. there may be um, ge- geological issues that I, I, I can't speak to. That's probably no. That's what it was. Yeah, someone explained it. There's a YouTube video for everything. There is. <laughs> So let's move. Uh, we have, we've got two little topics to talk about this hour. So I met you through our new, I'll call it the New Atheist Club on campus. Uh, it was uh, it's called um, 
It wasn't Shaft. No, it wasn't Shaft. Was it was it? Shaft. Okay, we call it Shaft, which was secular, humanist, atheist, free thinkers. Yes, that's it. So it wasn't it wasn't a sentence, but it was just stating all of who were part of it. Yeah. So so I, I just just for you, but also I had these in the bank already. Two stories. One is from Gallup. You love Gallup polls, right? I do love Gallup polls. Um, they do them all the time on uh, religiosity in America. There's uh, they're used by us all the time to talk about like, are we winning? It's it's a really good like way of like in the culture war, who's winning? Like who has ground in, in looking at the public perception and the numbers of just like who identifies as what uh, rather than just asking for like specific personal opinions and feelings on things. Uh, so this is uh, March of this year. T- headline uh, is U.S. church membership falls below majority for first time filed by Jeffrey Jones. Now, was, now that's specific about church membership. Okay. Not like identifies as Christian or identifies as religious, just members of a specific organized church so it's like or this is about this is attending to organized religion american membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year dropping below 50 percent for the first time in gallup's eight decade trend in 2020 47 percent of americans said they belonged to a church synagogue mosque or other uh place of worship down from 50 percent in 2018 so it was half two years ago 70% 70% in 1999. So it's a 22% drop in 20 years. And it was pretty static at 70% or the high 70s throughout the 20th century. And then suddenly it starts declining after something happened in 2001. I uh, I forget. Yeah, I, let me check. I was told never to forget, but I forgot. Let me see. 2001. It sounds familiar. U.S. church membership was 73% when Gallup first measured it in 1937 and remained near 70% for the next six decades before beginning a steady decline around the turn of the 21st century. Bridge to the 21st century. As many Americans celebrate Easter and Passover this week, Gallup updates a 2019 analysis that examined the decline in church membership over the past 20 years. Gallup asked Americans a battery of questions on their religious attitudes and practices twice each year. The following analysis of declines, church membership relies on a three-year aggregate from 1998 to 2000. So they go, they go, they, their, their numbers come from three-year aggregates. So it's not just from one particular year, but from like a three-year span, which is nice. This is good data gathering. The aggregates allow for reliable estimates by subgroup with each three-year period consisting of data, for more than 6,000 adults. Decline in membership tied to increase in lack of religious affiliation. The decline in church membership is primarily a function of the increasing number of Americans who express no religious preference. So, like past um, polling, even going back to 08 to 06 when, you know, we were new atheists, we would always talk about, like, okay, the number of nuns are increasing. Not really the number of atheists. That still kind of holds at 9% all the time. New hard or soft atheists. But nuns are ever increasing. Over As the, in N-O-N, yes. Yes, none. No religion. <laughs> Over the past, like, I'm a D, like, maybe they're a deist or a kind of such a Christian that um, it's hard to pin down, like, I don't know, they were Christian almost in a philosophical way. 
but it's just or saying I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. My favorite, my favorite one. But since they're American, that spirituality kind of comes in the form of uh, a deistic god and 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 roping in Jesus as like a subdeity. Over the past two decades, the percentage of Americans who do not identify with any religion has grown from eight percent in the late '90s to thirteen percent in 08 to 2010. That's when we start uh, got into this, and 21 percent over the last three years. As would be expected, so it's approaching a quarter. As would be expected, Americans without a religious preference are highly unlikely to belong to a church or or any place of worship, although a small proportion, 4%, say they do. That figure is down from 10%. What? 4% in the data of those that don't have a preference, but they go to a place of worship? Yeah, that sounds totally fine. Yeah, maybe maybe it's referring to utilitarians, which is the mishmash. The religion for everybody. That figure is, I mean, it's, it's like the Futurama joke where like the, you have like a, a priest, but he's just wearing all the garments. And I did go to a Unitarian Universalist service. It was uh, holidays, I guess. And it was like, yeah, this really is like for boomers who just don't like want to be religious, but they still want to go to church because they have nostalgia about it. There are other ways to gather and talk about stuff. Um, given the nearly perfect alignment between not having a religious preference and not belonging to a church, 13%. I wonder if a Sunday assembly uh, factors in here at all. I mean, it's a very small set thing. but Most of the rest of the drop can be attributed to a decline in formal church membership among Americans who do have a religious preference. So between 98 and 2000, an average of 73% of religious Americans belong to one. The past three years, the average has fallen to 60 so that's so that's the question of, yeah, the number who are both going to church and have religious affiliation. Weird. And there's also generational differences. Church membership is strong correlated to age. Sixty-six percent of traditionalists, uh, U.S. adults born before forty-six, belong to a church, compared with fifty-eight percent of boomers. Fifty percent of those in Gen X. Thirty-six percent in millennials. So it's a, approaching a third. The limited data Gallup has on church membership along the proportion portion of Gen Z that has reached adulthood are so far showing church membership rates similar to those of millennials. Holding steady, I guess. Decline in church membership then appears likely tied to population change with those in older generations who are, were likely to be church members being replaced in the U.S. adult population with those younger who are less likely. I, I don't like that. I don't like that explanation. It, it almost sounds yeah. like me saying, you know, let's say I sell beer. It, it's or, attrition. It's not. It has nothing to do with changes in culture or material conditions, but, right? But it has to do with branding. The the, uh-huh. the churches have branded themselves in a very political way, and which is why you see that small amount where they identify as a, a spiritual or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and they don't believe dot dot dot, but they go to a religious house dot dot dot. But um, I, I I do think that the brand. The, the, and and they're, they're different brands. We can You're referring into. to that as the ex- explanation? Yes. Okay. Not just that. It's because, generational attrition. Well, I, I think saying generational attrition is like blaming but it's also like, someone else. But it's also like why are the younger less likely to be religious? Is it just bad branding? Well, or it, is it the changes in our society and the fact that we're facing down a real Armageddon or something? And so this is a... Whether you you either turn to apocalyptic religion, but it's not really on the rise. It just means that those that 
already follow apocalyptic religion are increasing in their ferocity. Well, the reason why you can't fill your pews isn't because people outside don't want to come to your pews. It's because there's something you need to do or you're not doing. You know, it, it'd be almost as if, you know, I have a business and I'm losing customers. And I say, oh, the reason I'm losing customers is because of the customer's fault. It's like, it's, it's not the customer's fault. Maybe you need to change something. And when I say maybe, I literally mean it, that's your job. You know? Well, in the past, it's like all community institutions, really. That in the past, church, it wasn't really about the spiritual aspects as much as being a community center, a place to be as a community. In, in a group and like throughout all of postmodernism postmodern age we have every institution has become or every i mean it's been encouraged from reagan on or 75 on talked about this in previous episodes um everything is a market transaction everything is consumer choice and that includes your religion it's not a community function anymore it's like a function of what's good for you and if you don't go to church for a year and nothing good happens, like you don't get like the new job or you don't like meet your future husband or something, then it's like, well, what am I doing here? I'm obviously not being the spiritual fulfillment isn't enough. I'm getting that from yoga or or in this atomized society, I can never be fulfilled or I'm getting that from Internet or something. But which is not the case. But but, but definitely, yeah. definitely, like you said. Historically, or you know, what have you? Um, the, it's been less about you know, like the doctrine and more about the community space. Like, yeah, um, I think it's just what you just said, and, and and I think that's actually key because then, what kind of community is your house of worship offering? So maybe the you know, in, I, I'm off the top of my head. Some religious traditions offer community to a, to a specific group of people and not to others. So you may find yeah. along re religious sects that there are black churches and white churches but or it gets sectarian it gets ethno segregate segregationist or something like that well, 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 for the well that's how it used to be well, so maybe in this maybe there's more post-racial society or at least in the cosmopolitan areas okay. if, if millennials and yeah. gen z don't feel that there is a community in your house of worship that is welcoming to them yeah. then they'll find or they'll make a community elsewhere exactly and which is what it's, it's 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 your fault we all kind of do which is exactly um, what we do. <laughs> and, but then what we lack is these nice spaces. I mean, we're using a former church, and that's how a lot of churches are converted in these other types of community centers that are basically do everything that maybe a church used to do, but it's instead of just a different kind of nonprofit, so it's still tax-exempt mostly, but doesn't give sermons and yeah. doesn't have... A community um, without fire and brimstone. Yeah. Community without... It doesn't even have to be fire and brimstone, but any kind of sermon, any kind of like lecturing. Or a required weekly um, meeting, though, because people hate meetings. And that's kind of the problem with most services is that you either make it a nice ritual show that's entertaining to some extent, or at least not entertaining is not the word, but spirit, spiritually fulfilling. You know, if it was a spiritually fulfilling, you know, you know, what, you know what, what kind of church I would go to? I would go to a church that is live ASMR performance. <laughs> so maybe there's a big screen and some nice speakers and someone's just up there making click tapping sounds and stuff like that and they just do that for an hour and it's just uh you know and you just bliss out but it would be a church just for people who have the smr response <laughs> it's an asm response so 
are there enough of such people in in one area? I don't know. Probably because those those videos get millions, you know, and there's a lot of them. So, would you say yeah, would, yeah. You, would you say that the capitalization of religion in American culture helped to kill it off? So I, I feel like there's a sort of like you know. Um, mm-hmm business side to yeah. church which you know i'm not criticizing but I'm, it certainly hasn't is, killed it in the belt in the bible belt has it called is maybe it, it has or, 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 or maybe the numbers right? have been yeah the numbers have been probably declining there too they may be higher than new york but yeah they're probably also trending down but just maybe slower because yeah. it, it actually is more of a generational attrition it, it's almost like when you like if someone says i'm, I'm gonna pick the queen of england like the more you step into the political space is the more you're identifying with one thing and the less like you are or more likely you are to have people pull away, not because they don't necessarily like you, but you're identifying yourself with this specific thing. And I think some of the churches have identified themselves very sharply. Yes. And so maybe if they're a little bit more vague. With conservative. <laughs> I mean, there are liberal churches, but even why haven't the churches, liberal churches, been able to retain like... The UU's, Unitarians, are still just boomer-centric, and it's it's a bunch of gray hairs. And there there aren't like I mean there are some young people, maybe the children of the boomers going there, but they're there because they're there with their parents or they're for something their parent is doing, or because Unitarian Universalist uh, is a pretty good venue here in Albany for political forums and stuff. I mean, so are we. We we eventually want to be just as much of a venue as they are. Though their um, assembly hall is a bit nicer, <laughs> but uh, but we have a radio station attached to broadcast, so that's the dream. Uh, we did it once when we we started the studio, but um, we haven't really done it since that much. Well, you, you, you're building an inclusive community, yeah. I, th- I think here, and because we have a lot of different programs, we have a Spanish program, we got a lot, and we do have space for more. So next is the New York Times piece, which uh, we can definitely um, rag on as much as uh, go, hmm. Because <laughs> it's written by, and, and I didn't know, this, I, I'm not going to hide it, but because only when I reread it that I'm like, oh, oh. This is, read, this is written by a fellow of the Cato Institute. What's uh, his name or her name? Oh, they don't even give it till the end. There's a man. He's a Turk. Mustafa Akayol. Okay. A senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a contributing writer and author of a book called The Islamic Jesus, or Jesus. Those listening that need a refresher, the Cato Institute is one of the Beltway think tanks that are libertarian slash right-wing. Usually they're kind of like free trade boosters as well as like neocon foreign policy. So... The, it, though this this piece says nothing about like U.S. policy or intervention, it is coming from a place of like the scary Muslims, and maybe this this guy's like, well, maybe they're not so scary, or because he's coming from a place of like this is what we thought 15 years ago, right? We meaning neocons. Across much of the Islamic world, many Muslims are disillusioned with the ugly things done in the name of their religion. So, so maybe the, the trend that started after 9-11 for us, ISIS has been for them. But it's not just ISIS, of course. For decades, social scientists studying Islam, of course, like where are they? Are they these Western social scientists? Uh, discuss whether the second biggest religion in the world would go through the major, the major transformation that the biggest one, Christianity, went through meaning secularization. 
would Islam also lose its hegemony over public life to become a mere one among many voices, not to dominate one in Muslim societies, or the dominant one? Many Westerners, a.k.a. the Imperial Corps, gave a negative answer, thinking Islam is just... So, so by many Westerners, he's referring to the neocons who invaded Iraq. <laughs> Thinking Islam is just too rigid and absolutist to secularize. Oh, but it wasn't just neocons, of course. There were plenty of new atheists, like Sam Harris, and, uh, and who still harps this way. Okay. Uh, or Richard Dawkins, uh, so to some extent. Um, many Muslims also gave a negative answer, but proudly so. Our true faith would go, not go down the erroneous path of the godless West. The rise of Islamism, which I'll call political Islam, a highly politicized interpretation of Islam, which is a, I think he does not say that it was a reaction to Amer Western imperialism, but since the 1970s only seemed to confirm the same view, that Islam is resistance of secularization uh, as Sahid, but it also could be a sign that they haven't modernized yet because their modernization was kind of thrown off track by Western imperialism, which is why they, um, and it also ignores that all of these Islamist parties and the uh, Islamic thinkers were all Western funded and backed. Uh, I mean, uh, something to mention with uh, Palestine, Hamas exists. Israel helped fund Hamas to undermine the more left-wing PLO. Which, which is an exceptional point. Um, so, 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 so there seemed to be this presumption that Islam has to go through a process of secularization, yes. which I'm not saying it doesn't. Or, or, that, or that the political Islam was also something that just came out of nothing, or like this is just the way it is. It's also sort of like um, expecting, this expectation that our path mm. is the path, and yeah. there are no other paths. It's the latter. And, and if they don't come down this path, which we have worn, then... Why are, they, why are they coming on the path that we came down? And I'm not saying they shouldn't. All I'm saying is, well, they're a different culture, different people. Um, I like your example about Israel and Hamas, because then you're on the flip side, I would argue the secularization, or let's say, sec if secularization was to sort of become a big thing in, in Islamic countries, it, it, the first challenge is that from the side of Western countries, we do everything in our power to empower the right wing. I mean, when you invade any country, mm -hmm. it, it, you, like by Iraq. definition... <laughs> You, by definition, import the right wing. You know, look, people love their country. You know, even when it's hell, they love their country. And even people who hate right wing people, once these foreign armies start walking in, then you literally shift power from whatever moderates there were, which you want to support or what have you. You literally hand all this power over to the far right. In some cases, we hand them hellfire missiles and drones. And or sometimes software, it's just the moral high ground. And, and software to hunt down journalists and dissidents. And then we look back at the same Islamic countries and go, why can't they secularize as our tax dollars are funding despots? Why don't they have women's rights? <laughs> In Saudi Arabia, why, why don't they? Maybe it's oh, yeah. because the king of Saudi Arabia has all the means he needs to keep women and, well, all the men there down. Yeah. I was too young to notice, but like Arafat is not like this clerical like fire and brimstone guy, unless it's talking about Israel, I guess, but... And I also never got an impression he was left-wing, but I was also a little kid who couldn't tell the difference about anything. But I also don't know what the PLO's actual program was, but they were very least social democrats of some type, you know, welfare state. So, uh, which the Iranian government also is too, but you, know, you wouldn't know it. Yet nothing in human history is set in stone. Oh, yeah, so uh, let's see. This is from Shahid. 
Shah Hadid's prominent thinker on religion and politics. He observed in his 2016 book, Islamic Exceptionalism. Yet nothing in human history is set in stone, and there are now signs of a new secular way of breeding in the Muslim world. Some of those signs are captured by Arab Barometer, a research network based in Princeton and the University of Michigan, whose opinion, so these are American institutions, apparently, uh, whose opinion surveys map adrift away from political Islam and even Islam itself. The network's pollsters recently found that in the last five years, the six pivotal Arab countries, quote-unquote, trust in Islamic parties and trust in religious leaders have declined, as well as attendance in mosques. Granted, the trend isn't that huge. Arabs who describe themselves as not religious were 8% by those polled in 2013. It's not a very high number. But that has risen to 13% in 2018, which kind of sounds like the rise of nuns, but instead of no religion, it's just, well, it's not religious. So it actually is the same label. Uh, so some experts on the region, like Hashem Heller, an Egyptian-British scholar, advises caution. Yet others, like the Lebanese-born popular Middle East commentator Carl Shero, with a thing about, you know, when you say someone's a commentator, like, uh, are they just some jack? off on the radio or the, are they like uh, the Limbaugh of their of their country don't insult Limbaugh mm. may <laughs> rest in peace the unisex bathroom you ever heard of that joke <laughs> no tell me well th that that the grave of a, of a hated person is a unisex bathroom Je comprends. <laughs> I think there is really something going on it is true to a certain extent that's the thing. We can be a little raunchier after 10 p.m., I see. but this program ends at 10, so we got to keep that in mind. Uh, there are some really something going on. It is true to a certain extent that you can feel in many places, including the Gulf, he said, regarding the secular wave. It's the beginning of something that will take a while, maybe another 20 years. Despite Western actions. Just, right. That is, that is something in the background to keep in mind here, that this... Maybe neocon, I don't know what his actual politics are. But he's writing for Cato, so. What is the cause? Question mark. It is mainly Islamic, Islamist policies, politics, and some of the social and political manifestations of the Islamic awakening, uh, Mr. Sharo argued. These include, he said, disappointment with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, you know, when you actually have Islamic government in charge, um, and they're not well, that. They mentioned Muslim Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood. Were they ever in charge of, of Israel, Egypt? As in, I, I know they never were. But what about the despots, the actual autocrats not, in Egypt? Not quite. You, them, you know, right? they they were quite. I could say that their government was, and this is after you know the Tahrir Square Arab Spring. They their government was really hamstrung, um, and the fact that there was no other political institutions that kind of back them up. There kind of needed to be like people in the streets or general strikes, or like the United States or their business. That as well. And in fact, if anything, America stepped in and made sure that CC and the military came back. Yes, you know, and, and uh, we, we sabotaged their government, their we, ability to do any programs to generally increase the welfare of the lives of of common Egyptians. So, of course, when the um, a crisis is manufactured, the military then steps back in and, and everyone is moderately okay with it because things had not improved. There's nothing to defend. So he's definitely framing things as like, 
look how organic everything is. <laughs> but really, there's a lot of other things going on. I, I remember this sidetrack. This really nice book. It kind of made the case that like political Islam was just a different way of modernizing. Like there's different ways to be modern. That there isn't just the Western liberal way of being modern. That political Islam is, or, or the Al-Qaeda way is kind of, they're just as, mo I mean, it's just a general kind of a hot point. It's not really a conclusion of any kind, but just like to recognize that like they're just as modern as the Valley Girl, girl Shopper. They're, they're in the same world. This is Earth. They Global malls, economy. They have cars. They have TV. Right, right. They take airplanes. You know, burn the fossil fuels. <laughs> they burn fossil fuels too. <laughs> as well as the shock of ISIS, fatigue with sectarian parties in Iraq and Lebanon, anger at the Islamist regime in Sudan. So this is all just like a... Like, I mean, the growth of no religion, of course, isn't like... It's just a tiny piece of, a, of an overall social picture of, of politics and, and imperialism and whatever. But that's the kind of like these stories, you know, I don't, they sit around a while, even though the last one was this year, they, they will sit in my bank a while because it's hard to tie them into these larger left-wing concepts or strategizing because they're just such a small part of everything. They're like, if, if this is what you focus on, as I did in college, it's like, I couldn't understand how the world worked just by hating religion or just looking at the numbers on religiosity. It was really limiting to just view everything in terms like if your partisan politics is religious or not religious. It ignores so much. It does matter, culturally speaking, but it doesn't really affect how left-wing or socialist or uh, human nature-centric one is because there are plenty of religious anarchists and there's lots of religious leftists and there's tons of memes about how like the the new atheists it's like no the religious are, are irrational and i don't want them in my movement it's not going to be a big movement man <laughs> um, but even though the number are shrinking there are still plenty of i'm uh, i want spiritual fulfillment too so uh let me dance in your revolution please or let me pray in your revolution or make space for prayer which of course we should and all kinds of different prayer rituals you know carve out some space for who's, the satanic who's, temple who's, who's taking space away from them where, where can't they pray at least in the united states like like oh in which jurisdiction no one are you barred from it's a prayer? hypothetical it, it's umbra in a leftist it's, space that like they'll say you're not welcome here because you're religious or something or you you have a crucifix why that's don't, what, that's why what don't you go join the rad righties that's called that, that's called uh, you know? karma that, 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 that's what religious communities do. Religious communities reject other humans all the time. We don't want black people in our, in our church. We don't want gay people in our church. So I'm not saying it's okay if, yeah. if people want to pray, but I'm just saying. But if they're leaving, say they're coming to a leftist space because they're fleeing their old church space that was bigoted, they're not going to want to be bigoted just because they don't want to drop whatever f form of Christianity they adhere to. Well, it, well, is it bigoted for okay. us to have a, an organization? We start a club or we start a, yeah. a, an org and we, we don't pray. And, and you join it, but you want to pray. I'm not sure it's bigoted. You know, so, so I can well, in the same that we, we don't have mandatory prayer time. But I think if you open and close a meeting with maybe like a minute of quiet or reflection. And if we don't, then that's bigotry.
it, it almost seems that the people who are bigots. I'm not saying I'm not saying it is, but it's not being that inclusive, and it is and is kind of showing this. It's not being an inclusive. It movement. sounds like whataboutism to me because I don't think mm-hmm. the majority. We, are, we you talk about political Islam. We we live in a country of political Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the the Supreme Court pretty much says that you know churches can just spread COVID. They're, 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 they're businesses. They're like supermarkets or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Which, which and they can make their own rules about masks and whatever. Their, and of course, they have made no rules whatsoever. Because God protects them. Right. Yeah. So the same people who have these huge exceptions carved out for them, the right to discriminate against gays, dot, 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 are going to say to me or someone else that they are discriminated in some other space. You have all the space. It's all your space. Mm-hmm. We're here by your mercy. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, but, but, but I, I do feel, um, do you, I remember when we were t- in college, I'm not sure if you remember this, but uh, I did try and f- sort of keep our focus. Mm-hmm. As a this, club. As a club, because it's not that we're trying focus to exclude on some on, on shaft, on yeah, secularism, yeah. humanism, right. atheism, free thinking. Um, the secular humanism, especially for me, that like, because free thinker is just such a nebulous term that I don't like. It's such an old Victorian term. It has an old meaning. And and uh, it, they basically grew into the AFL-CIO. I think but, they're just trying to make the acronym. But the thing to mention about the – well, yeah, sure, sure. But the thing about the free thinker label, and this goes from like the, the book I just dropped off in the free library, uh, Free Thinkers by Susan Jacoby. She has the chapter, and this is kind of when I put the book down, where she kind of explains how in the 20s, all the free-thinking movement or the uh, you know, uh, separation of church and state, they allied with socialists for the cause or whatever cause it was <laughs> up until the, new, the Red Scare, and they cut and run from them whatsoever. They, were, they needed them until they didn't in the 20s. And they dropped them, and they never defended their right to free speech when it came to the censorship of left-wingers, socialists, anarchists, whatever. They could get it disimported because as far as the liberals, free thinkers were concerned, they didn't need them anymore. Or they maybe never needed them in the first place. But it's always the left is willing to work with these moderates or these liberals, but liberals will always stab them in the back. Covered that over and over. At the earliest and that's why, like, why do you hate liberals as much as Republicans? Because we know our history. And it happens every goddamn cycle, too. Fool me one time, it's your fault. Yes. Fool us two times, it's our um, fault. We're not going to be fooled. Yeah. Da, da, da. Moving back. When you leave the Arab world and look at the two important powers nearby, Iran and Turkey, you can see the same trend, but on a bigger scale. In Iran, the Islamic Republic has ruled for 40 years now, but it has failed in its zeal to re-Islamize society. Instead, the opposite has happened. The Middle East scholar Nadir Hashemi has observed, most Iranians today aspire to live in a democratic, liberal, and secular republic, not a religious state run by clerics. Quote, unquote. Indeed, many have had enough of those clerics and are bravely defying them in the streets. In Turkey, my country, a softer but similar experiment has taken place in the past two decades. Under the leadership of President Erdogan, uh, Turkey's formerly marginalized Islamists, after decades of autocratic uh, Ataturk rule, you know, which was secular, you know, secular by default, by fiat. Under the pre- uh, let's see, the Turkey's formerly marginalized Islamists have become a new ruling elite. This allowed them to make their faith more visible and assertive. But it was also a fig leaf for their insatiable lust for power, power grabbing. So as the Turkey-born sociologist uh, Mucenet Bilhici has observed, 
Today, Islamism in Turkey is associated in the public mind with corruption and injustice, and many Turks detest it more than ever. The disillusionment is often only with Islamism as a political instrument, but it can turn against Islam, the religion itself, in Turkey. The latter is manifested in a social trend among its youth that has become the talk of the day. The rise of deism, or belief in a god without religion, Pro-Erdogan Islamists are worried about this big threat to Islam, but perceive it tragicomically, tragicomically <laughs> as yet another Western conspiracy rather than their own accomplishment. That's probably a better word than using, overusing ironic to say tragicomically. I think that's what people mean. That's both, it's tragic, but a comical that you uh, believe the opposite or you do the opposite of what you think you know, is, is causing it because uh, ironic doesn't fit. In these situations, agreed. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? Don't, don't you, you think? think? <laughs> so far as this secular, but does tragic comic? Isn't it tragic comic? I mean, maybe a metal song, tragic comic disaster. <laughs> How far can this secular wave go? Only God knows to offer a religious answer. Nonetheless, it is worth noting. I hate that style of writing. Get to the point. Now, unless it's worth noting that this wave differs from the kind of secularism imposed on the Muslim world about a century ago. Oh, really? Under authoritarian Westerners like Ataturk and Reza Shah of Iran. You know, Western-backed dictators. <laughs> Theirs was a top-down revolution imposed by the state and was widely, or and opposed by the outside as well, perceived as inauthentic. I wonder why they're inauthentic. This time, however, we are speaking of a bottom-up trend coming from society, from people fed up with all the ugly things done in the name of religion. Do you think that the Communist Party of Afghanistan was, was seen, I mean, it's, it's kind of historically viewed as also being top-down, but, I mean, they were also local party, but supported by the Soviet Union. But, I mean, were they put there by the Soviet Union? Maybe I'll have to look into it. I know there was just one of several political factions that won out in a, the first civil war, and then as they were trying to establish their government, Western-funded militias, the Mujahideen, start a new civil war, and then they ask the Soviets for help. And the rest is history. Sure. That is why it reminds me of the beginnings of the Enlightenment, when Europeans, having seen the horrors of religious wars and persecution, I, I hear that sigh from here. Uh, uh, having the horrors of religious wars and persecution developed the idea of a political secularism, which also championed reason, freedom of thought, equality, and tolerance. But, of course, they're not separate from the goddamn world, okay? They have access to Enlightenment texts, too, you know? In fact, Arab nationalism and the sort of modern socialist-leaning Arab nationalism and the governments that existed before Western intervention... They're just as modern and Enlightenment-based. Jeez. <laughs> Ataturk learned from Europe, you know. Uh, he's, I'm sorry. He, he said what? Hmm? Ataturk learned from Europe? That this sentence actually says that? No. Okay, let's check. No. <laughs> of course, these fine ideals can be compatible with Islam as well. Islamic modernists have been arguing since the late 19th century. Yeah, that's kind of a long time. It's not really a recent thing. Moreover, Tunisia, a rare bright spot in the Arab world, suggests that there is hope in this moderate path. See, they're for the moderate path, Rory. Moderate path. Got to go down the center. 
But if Islamists and conservatives keep their old ways, they may face a radical version of the Enlightenment, fiercely anti-clerical and decidedly anti-religious. Can't have that. Reminiscent of what turned France against the hegemonic Catholic Church. If only they went all the way. I mean. But they didn't, actually. They tried to go all the way, but they kind of went all the way in a silly way. Uh, trying to change the clocks and all that, you know. Therefore, if Islamists and conservatives really care about the future of Islam rather than amassing power in its name, they should begin thinking about ugly... Wait, wait, Why are you giving advice to Islamists? See, this Cato Institute freak is, like, concerned with stopping the extremes. Apparently. Because, you know, <laughs> if you want to fight the... You know, you, yeah, you don't want the religious extreme, but you also don't want the other opposite of that. What would be the opposite of that, Rory? It could be more of a left-leaning extreme. Hmm, yeah. Because what was the French Revolution uh, well, well, at its core? Well, whatever it is, they don't want the will of the people of the specific country. Yeah. They, they want the to, moderate they want path. The moderate path. Which is the... The path they want. Capitalist rule <laughs> path, yes. The neocon path. Um, and neoliberal, too. Therefore, okay, yes. so Islam at its core has many virtues to inspire humanity, such as, you know, all the good stuff, uh, and far too long the sake of power and dictates the book. Yeah, yeah, okay. So this guy writes for Cato, but he's like a more of a contributor. But otherwise, this was in the New York Times opinion section as well. So, yeah, the Times. When are they going to publish some anarchists? I mean, they do once a decade, <laughs> but... Well, uh, uh, um... Why should they publish anarchists? Or like, what's, what's so special about it? Like, uh... well, there's millions of anarchists in the world, and it's a legitimate point of view in world history, uh, especially in the last 200 years. I think it's a legitimate point of view, and if you're going to say we have uh, a diversity of opinions, then you should also have an anarchist and a socialist point of view. That sounds familiar. What fair and balanced? <laughs> Literally, creationism. <laughs> If you're going to have the capitalist point of view, you need to have the socialist point of view. Uh, oh, you know what? That makes perfect sense. And if you're going to have the socialist point of view, you should have the capitalist point of view. And that's what the Pravda didn't do, you know? So that's why they're bad. I can't sleep, no, not like I used to.
Left off. Um, you were taking some vigorous notes. Oh, was there, was there anything? In New York Times, right? Is where we were. Well, ju- just uh, what does it mean to have a diversity opinion? And if the New York Times is going to have neocons and neolibs on their opinion section all the time, then maybe they should, you know, have anarchists and socialists too. Well, th- th- there's one thing I thought of. It, well. it's, it's just a gripe. It's not a real gripe okay. because obviously, like, <laughs> we should just have newspapers that other people read. Well, well to that point, you know, um, in the end, the New York Times, like churches, is a business. Um, I'm not saying yes, yes or no, but um, they will have a target audience. Maybe I think they will do better with a wide audience, but um, especially because they're an international yes. paper in addition to being. That's um, why Nathan Robinson started Current Affairs. So, like, there is an anarchist opinion section. It's Current Affairs, and there's Counterpunch. So go go there. So it's like that. It's not like this it doesn't exist at all. I'm just saying, the New York Times is supposed to be the paper of record that everyone, important people, get everything they ever need to know from. <laughs> so, were there any other party thoughts about uh, the secular secularism in, this, in the Middle East? Yeah, well, back to what I was saying before, I think it's, you know, we're westernizing, we're using Western eyes to try to make sense of what's happening there. Um, we're also using Western power to undermine uh, the people whom we champion in newspaper articles like this. Yes. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we seem to expect, um, we don't understand how foreign policy. Yeah. No, without us. ever actually talking to any of them. I mean, he, he quotes some like ivory tower intellectuals. I'm not going to say ivory tower, but could be ebony tower. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't say that in a negative way because when I say ivory tower, I actually picture this um, marble. Well, in this anime, there's literally like this witch that lives in an quote-unquote ivory t- like it's basically a big elephant tusk that's like up like a tower, and it's like Rapunzel sto- styles. Yeah, it's like four stories, and it's I mean it's super thin. It's like kind of like a Harry Potter. The the, the what's what's the where the Weasleys live? What's, what's the burrow? It was called the burrow. So in the second hour, I uh, just have a bunch of conversation starters, but they all are themed around food, food distribution and whatever. They're all really f- more fun, plucky stories, nothing too heavy, nothing like, oh, now we're going to go into the theory of food production from Bakunin, uh, Conquest of Bread. And there's enough of that out there. Um, this is a Washington Post. 
It still says democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> Frickin' hell. From the morning mix, this uh, is from a while ago. This is November 2019. So I've had this in the bank a while. And it's just a very small, like, point in the store, uh, in the... But it says it's good count. Okay. When a deep red town's only... But of course, red means Republican here, okay? Now, red, to me, means something Not different. Russian. Yeah. <laughs> Russian, because that's the color of Russia. Uh, a deep red town's only groceries closed. City Hall opened its own store. Just don't call it socialism. Of course not. You can call it state capitalism. <laughs> States or, so, or state socialism. Because yeah, I... I'm, don't I'm, call it a commune. I'm, je- I'm, je- I'm uh, generous. <laughs> Filed by an Antonia Frazan. Baldwin, Florida. When Sean Lynch ran for mayor, he never anticipated that the job would involve hiring a butcher and tracking the sale of greens. But, uh, collard greens. In 2018, <laughs> two years into the, his first term, the only grocery store in town shut down. People in Baldwin, Florida, a rural outpost in northeast Florida. Northeast Florida, okay. So it's panhandle, but it's like the coastal panhandle. We're left with few options. They could leave town driving 10 miles through road construction to nearby McLeany or battle 20 miles of freeway traffic through Jacksonville's suburban sprawl. Alternatively, they could cobble together a meal out of canned goods from the local Dollar General or head to a nearby truck stop for greasy, deep-fried fast food. For many of Baldwin's roughly 1,600 residents, though, traveling for food wasn't really a choice. The town's median household income is forty-four thousand, as is, which is well below the state average, and it's not uncommon for families to juggle their schedules around sharing one car. Senior citizens also make a significant percentage of the population, so it's a very aging town as well. So they're on a fixed income, thus, not much profit to exploit, you know. Uh, so Lynch came to his colleagues with a proposal: What if the town opened its own store? Abandoned by mainstream supermarkets whose business models don't have room for low profit margins, both urban and rural communities nationwide have turned to resident-owned co-ops or nonprofits to fill the gap. But Baldwin is trying something different. So that's like in Albany, we're also relying on um, nonprofits to fill the gap. As we are just around the corner, we have the African American Cultural Center opening a greengrocer because yeah. even the Dollar General moved out of the South End. Don't even have that anymore. At the Baldwin Market, which opens its doors on September 20th, all the employees are on the municipal payroll. So this is a municipally owned and operated business. So it kind of counts as municipalism to me, uh, which is a municipal <laughs> communalism, the real Fifth International. <laughs> Workers from the town's maintenance department take breaks from cutting grass to help unload deliveries, and residents flag down the mayor when they want to request a specific type of milk. So I guess he's also the manager. It's a very small town, so village almost sized. Uh, we're not trying to make a profit, Lynch told the Washington Post in a recent interview. We're trying to cover our expenses and keep the store running. Any money that's made after will go into the town in some way. It's like town investment. Though Lynch didn't know of any other municipally owned grocery stores when he bought, brought the idea to town council, Baldwin isn't alone. A similar experiment has been successful in St. Paul, Kansas, which has, also has a city-run store since 2013. David Proctor, who runs the Rural Grocery Initiative at Kansas State University, told the Post that another city-owned grocery store will open in Canny, Kansas this spring. 
So that only means three, probably more. Uh, at least one other town in the state is considering one as well. Many small-town grocers are reaching retirement age, and it's tough for communities with dwindling populations to attract new residents when there's no supermarket nearby. Consequently, Proctor says, food access becomes almost like utility that you have to have for a town to exist. Well, it's almost like there's some kind of economic floor. Did did he say utility? Yes. It's almost like a utility. Now, there's a lot of things that could be considered utilities uh, when it comes to things that could fall under public goods. Now, to a lefty, that means anything that should be decommodified. Uh, That's housing, that's food, that's food distribution is included in that. Energy, uh, water, of course, and... um, and maybe basic clothes, high um, high speed broadband. Yeah, yeah, internet. So it's municipal municipal internet, which is you know a new public good to add to the mix. But also you know recreation, parks and rec, and um, and transportation, um, which can be as simple as the road maintenance and can be as heavy duty as a bus network or trains, but whatever. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long laundry list, right? <laughs> and it seems like in order to fund it all, you kind of need some, I mean, this, this is the way some computer games work. You need an extractive industry to make enough of a profit to fund the basics, right? Like, so the, the fund, like, you can have a small town, but you need to fund the basics somehow. And that usually means an extractive industry. But... One model that hasn't been implemented at all yet, but it's like, what if everyone just kind of donates some of their time into basically maintaining all of these and doing anything that involves these public goods? It would be cheaper for me to pay or donate or pay taxes and give my time. Yeah. It's still, there's still the raw resources, you know, construction materials, ordering the food. Like, you have to order from the farmers, right? And you have to, they should have to be paid with something. But that's still a fraction if so, you take the labor costs out. So, so according to the mayor, they're running this, the town is running the supermarket. Yeah. And they're turning a profit. A small one, but they're not, it's not a priority. Well, I, I, I just, I'm just pointing out that yeah. they ran it at a profit. Like all the other supermarkets left. But the, the of course, but it's, not, it's like a small margin because supermarket, I mean. A profit is a profit. Sure. I mean, it's, an, it's enough <laughs> it's, to. It's paying for itself. It's enough to add. Yes, yeah. that's the important part. Go, yeah. It's not government's actually pretty efficient. <laughs> it's all lies. The point is right wingers lie. So when they say X is happening in Cuba or X is happening in this city or trans woman flash me in spa, you shouldn't you just don't believe them. Just I'm going to be sounding angry right now cuz this I'm serious about this. Don't believe right wingers. Just don't believe them. There's really no reason to believe them. They have lied over and over and over, they just lie. They just lie, 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 lie. When are they ever telling the truth? When are they ever being sensible? And like, I mean, a part of me says like, okay, you should give them the benefit of the doubt. They are human and they're concerned. And certainly their feelings must be based on something real. But if it's like, there must be a detector or some kind of tell that says like, this is an agenda. This is something they're lying about. Now, of course, couldn't all of that be applied to left-wingers? Do we lie about everything? I don't know. You can go look at what we're talking about and see if it's real or not. And you can look at what they're, but usually what they lie about is things you can't check out. Well, the, 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 what can be, one thing that can be said yeah. um, is in, in support of your point, or at least to, to, to sort of like parse it out, um, sort of like see my, 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 my own perspective. 
I am going to assert that there are several other towns like mm -hmm. Baldwin where maybe in a similar position where they're food deserts or maybe they have one last supermarket or they have no supermarket. Mm -hmm. um, there are several such communities for which politicians or leaders or municipal leaders have refused. Yes. On, on principle. Yes. Because they're, up, they're uh, good capitalists. They're freedom-loving, commie-hating. But the thing is, see, okay, let, let me, let's read the so, rest so, of so, this. So, so, so just consider yeah, yeah. the number of Americans yeah. who Haven't are done without this. a food because where they live, the town won't take an action like it took yeah. in a majority red district yeah. in a majority red state. Yeah, because it's like, oh, it's the, the market rules. So you will drive 20 miles to go shopping. Or some people are more important than other people. Yes. Because, hey, it's just a village of a thousand, right? Let them die. And they basically the said this. Pick. As far as the pandemic's concerned, they have basically said that to a lot of communities. Notably, these experiments in communal ownership are taking place in deep red parts of the country where the word socialism is an anathema. You expect to hear about this in a place like the People's Republic of Massachusetts, <laughs> jokes Brian Lang, the director of the National Campaign for Healthy Food Access at the Food Trust. But in many rural conservative communities struggling to hang on to their remaining residents, ideological arguments about the role of government tend to be cast aside uh -huh. as grocery stores shudder. Well, practicality actually is important. Material things actually matter. So, so it can't just be idealism. It can't just be ideas and how powerful, how good are your ideas. The power of an idea isn't what it does. So, there, there, yeah. There's also a fetishization. You know, it's fine for you to say, I imagine that some things shouldn't be handled by government. But we fetishize it and turn it into nothing can be handled by government. Yes. And, and in such a way, you sort of alienate the people who could support you. Or government shouldn't handle it if a business can. So, like, if there were a private grocer, well, of course there shouldn't be a town-run well, well, one. Well, well, a Even if the town one is more accountable and probably more efficient and cheaper and probably has, would low, have, thus have lower prices. But the, the, the time it takes a business or, a, you know, or, or what have you to figure out that it's not going to stick around in Baldwin yeah. and slowly re reduces service, maybe reduces the options in the, in, um, at a supermarket, the time it takes the business to prove to the state or to the municipal government that it is useless is people are suffering. People are without these services. So, 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 so it's great for the government to do if businesses can't, but yes. what counts is if businesses can't. 10 years, 20 years. Yeah. Now, Albany is moving towards municipal internet, but it's taking so goddamn long because, you know, we have an internet service, but it's just not great, and it's just getting more expensive every year as the telecoms. What, what, what's the official word for, like, you know, overcharging customers and... And just making up fees and whatever. Anyway. Overcharging? I guess overcharging. Or uh, um, capitalism? Whatever. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> I don't have to say it every goddamn five, every five minutes, you know. Uh, it's an assist. <laughs> Fundamentally, uh, what you have are people who lived in these rural communities all their lives, and they want these rural communities to survive, Proctor said. And they realize that without access to food, that's not going to happen. By definition, a collectively owned or government-run enterprise like the Baldwin Market is inherently socialist. Uh, but Lynch, well, it's not worker-run because they're, they're still employees. Um, so if technically the mayor is running it, so it's, it's almost autocratic in that way. But he's elected, which is more than can be said for most business owners. So if he's not doing a good job, it could be like the mayoral race will hinge on how well he's running it. That's, in, you know, that's cool. 
But Lynch, who has a nonpartisan position but governs a town where 68% voted for Trump in 2016, they don't see it that way. From his point of view, the town is just doing what it's supposed to do, providing services to residents who already pay in taxes. Uh, we take the water out of the ground, we pump it to your house and charge you, he said the Post. So what's the difference with a grocery store? Good question. Now, this is where it's not quite accurate to call it socialism. Because then it's like, um, this is a, another montage I have, is Richard Wolff going, around, like, sarcastically, like, socialism is when the government does stuff. And the more it does, the more socialist it is. And if it does a real lot, it's communism. <laughs> <laughs> it's that New Yorker humor. <laughs> so this isn't social because it's not worker run. It's not people run, right? It's it's mayor run, which is it's still more democratic, um, but it's more of a uh, – counts as maybe democratic socialist or or very least a social democrat. And when the government provides services or utilities like water – and food distribution, that's kind of a social democrat kind of thing, which is still a lot better. I mean, it's something to fight for, but it's also not like the the end goal kind of thing. Uh, but, it, but it would be a lot, a lot better. With quiet streets, 11 churches, 11 churches for 1,200 people, and a water tower that dominates the horizon. Baldwin remember, has more. Hmm? Remember, some, most of them aren't even going to the churches that are there. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Water Town and Dominance Horizon. Baldwin has more in common with a farming community to its west than its downtown, Jacksonville, to its east. About 12 years ago, local officials who were desperate for a supermarket agreed to build a store on a vacant lot the town owned so that they would have an easier time attracting grocers. That solution worked until 2018 when IGA shut down. The town tried in vain to find another tenant. But the 10,000-square-foot store was too small for the Winn-Dixie or Walmart and too big for a mom-and-pop grocer. Raising property taxes was a non-starter, which meant that so, too, was luring <laughs> retailers with generous incentives. Wait, why was raising property taxes an option? They don't, they'd prefer not to raise the taxes and not have food. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They can't raise Yeah, right, right. Okay. No food. To, to, to do what, though? Better, better not to pay extra taxes and we'll just do that food. I guess so. That's a Lynch, a retired Navy veteran who grew up in New York, moved to Baldwin. So he's a, he's a snowbird. Wonderful. Uh, with his family in the 80s when he was stationed in Jacksonville. Uh, so I guess he's not so much a snowbird. Uh, they decided to stay for the strong public schools and small town feel. And after getting... How, how did the small Florida town in the Panhandle have good public schools? I guess it was like a Jacksonville suburb. So I guess it had some money at one time. Already familiar with drawing up business plans and negotiating with suppliers, he didn't find it too much of a stretch to do the same for the shuttered grocery store. So that's kind of why maybe that's what these towns have in common is they have a mayor who's somewhat business savvy or like, I know how to actually run something. So maybe I could just do it. Because otherwise you, you have maybe a mayor who's a lawyer or an activist maybe who's like, I don't know how to run this. We have to hire somebody. But there's nobody who wants to do it. No one who will do it for pay. No one, no company to outsource to. And and uh, and and maybe there's no social institution. There's no community group 
who's willing to do it. And that's kind of the thing about in Albany and any other city where there's all of these basic utilities that should be community operated and stuff. And that's where like this station has been start and stop because we've had to really learn ourselves how to do the tech, how to run a station. It's a long learning process that takes years. It's like a part of a career. It also kind of, for the practical activists and all of you listening, be a jack of all trade. You are more, less dispensable that way to have a lot of small skills that maybe you can build on once you kind of maybe say, that's the project I'll work on the next 10 years. But you need a place to start. Otherwise, there are no projects that you go like, well, I, I know nothing about that. I know nothing about that. So there's nothing to start. There's nothing to join. But if you scan everything a little bit or you, know, there, you have options. That's the way I felt getting out of college, or at least in the last 10 years, learning all these new skills or whatever. can't believe that there's more. Okay, over the summer, after holding several workshops, the town council approved a $150,000 loan, which is piffling, uh, from a reserve fund to get the Baldwin market up and running. There wasn't much hesitation about getting into the grocery business, Lynch says, since just about everyone was frustrated with the lack of options. So there was no opposition. Uh, the IGA's former manager gladly took her old job back and resumed her duties, as if nothing had changed. Because so, there isn't really that much difference, is there? It's just ownership of food. Yep. Uh, making the supermarket an extension of City Hall did come with some bureaucratic hassles. It was crucial that the store accept EBT cards. But when, as it, so yeah, yeah I mean, that paperwork is a, a, a hell. Um, I mean, there are some local bodegas here in Albany that wanted to accept EBT. And their applications have been held up. So, like, they want to break the food desert by maybe not just having junk food or something like that. Or at least just being able to have people in the neighborhood chop there. <laughs> but, but it's been held up, and there was a, there was a lag. Well, the, the, there's definitely a sabotage there. You know? So, so, so the, 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 right, the yeah. armed forces in government... Um, the, yeah, they, they don't want to approve they these applications. They don't want it to happen. They think of it as bleeding. They think of it as bleeding the public coffers. They don't yeah, yeah, think yeah, of yeah. it as an investment in their community. Or just providing utility. I mean, or, or, as, as far as some uh, ideologues are concerned, there should be no utilities. Some anarchists. I mean, super, super libertarians. Well, that's the that's the argument that I would have with it, various anarchists that like when you have like your when your commune is the size of a thousand people, then surely you're like, you know, taking the surplus from everyone and everyone's putting in their part. It's being governed by, you know, some Democratic council or something and uh, committees and affinity groups, as they're usually called. And. And there would be little difference from this. I mean, at least structurally speaking. Maybe structurally it would be very different. But it's like when you, when when all the businesses are co-ops and they're all just trading with each other. Is it still a market economy? I mean, it is. Yeah, and that's market socialism. And of course, and as far as in our lifetimes, that's what most lefties kind of say. Like, this is where we can get. Like, yeah, there's all the other ideas. But just getting the market socialism where it's co-ops working in a capitalist market, but also all of the banks are co-ops and everything else is co-ops. So at least it's all at least worker controlled, not community controlled, but not, definitely not state controlled either. Uh, but when the when the when the government is a community or it's well represented to me, I mean, this is the statist in me. I, I'm OK with that. But um that representation needs to be like broad, 
like a big assembly where it's not based on uh, geography, like wards or states uh, or areas, but more like based on representation, based on your uh, identities, age group, class, various classes. Uh, you know, there should be a student rep. There should be a, you know, the trans rep, you know, and it's not based on percentage or maybe there, there can be weight added to the reps vote based on the percentage in the population. So that would actually be fair and calculated. So the student, you know, there's. I would also say, um, what is the, so these examples are in red areas. Yeah. How many are in blue areas? Let's say. We need to look that up, I guess. And I imagine the demographic of these places are, let's say, more amenable mm -hmm. to group sacrifice. Well, they likely have some food co-op already. Like, like, say, here in Albany, we're a very blue city. We have a food co-op. It's just one, but it's pretty large now and in pretty much i mean it's not centrally located in the city and that's kind of its problem it's not i mean it's adjacent to one of the hoods so actually it can serve one of them but just one so it's technically less of a food desert but it's not it's a very long neighborhood it's not like it's it's west yeah so there's a lot that isn't served well for me the number one thing and i think no one really pays attention to this is competence like competent government we get sometimes get caught up in how it should be structured. Is it government or not? Is like was it competent or not, or is it democratic it's, 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 or not? Well, the democracy is important, but I think we don't yeah. expect competent government, mm -hmm. or we don't want it, or we don't think it's normal. Yeah, and I think that um because I mean, government of experts or qualified people to me doesn't uh, guarantee competence. Absolutely, because that's how neoliberals kind of operate. Well, we have the qualified right people in charge. And, you, and you could pack it with Ivy League grads yeah. if you want to, as long as the outcome is, you know, it's, it's one, you, you can't get away with a nice, shiny... But what kind of outcomes are we getting? I mean, they would say they're, they're successful when economic growth goes up. That means nothing as far as alleviating poverty and, all, right. and other social ills. The targets, yes. But, like, if you, but this is where, like, maybe, like, the, the infiltration in their circles of, like, the, the triple bottom line and let's call they're it. They're incompetent. But, but, yes. But, but even when they do say those things, they're still not, like, they're still following capitalist ideology. So, um, and, and, and that's the thing. It shouldn't be about ideology. It should be about competence. So, yeah. Well, they wouldn't call themselves following any ideology. They say we're following the facts. But the facts are, like, where are they coming from? Think tanks and They other have a worldview. They have a vantage point. Yes. High atop their. That's what I mean. Yeah. So let's see. So far, the experiment has been a success. The town council had hoped to take in 3,500 a day, and sales have routinely exceeded that. Lynch says about 1,600 people, roughly the equivalent of the town's population, stopped in during the opening weekend. So everybody went there. Eight employees, all Baldwin residents, were hired at the outset, but the town recently brought on two more to help out during holiday seasons. That's interesting because it's the holidays that are like where everyone comes at once. As Lynch showed a reporter around on a recent weekday afternoon, a woman in a McDonald's uniform excitedly interrupted him. I'm so happy you guys are open, she gushed. I was a regular before, though she works at the truck stop in Baldwin. She lives in an even more rural community outside of town. She explained that had even she had been driving 10 miles out of her way on bad roads that always seemed to be under construction to get to the nearest Winn-Dixie. I guess that's Florida infrastructure for you. Bowen is surrounded by farm country, and in late October, local green beans, tomatoes, okay. And they actually have real food from local farmers, perhaps. 
So there's a lot more to this. Uh, last few paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, Lang of the Food Trust points out that since governments tend to have more resources and be more stable than nonprofits, a municipally owned go- grocery store could have more longevity than one operated by a community group. And this is where, like, the Trotsky's point of view comes in of, like, a, trans- a socialist transition means going to municipal ownership first. And then once that's really stable and, like, more total, like, local economy is now mostly municipally owned, then it just becomes co-ops. Or the, the municipality is so democratic with its representation, it might as well be just a big union. And then it's, what's the difference? You know, <laughs> and, that, and that's the Trotskyist way of thinking about it. That once all government is just worker controlled and elected, then what does it matter if it's the state or not? <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a real simplification, but. What's promising, he and others agree, is that communities struggling to draw a grocery store have another alternative they can consider. Matt Brunig, the founder of the People's Policy Project, a socialist think tank, likens it to having a public option for health care. <laughs> the idea that, of course he would, right? But hey, he's on my team, so I'll take it. I'll take it. The idea that a municipality should have to beg private companies to provide basic goods and services to its people is absurd. And being able to say, we will just do it ourselves, is very powerful. You could say it's people power. <laughs> so here's the other uh, side of it, so to speak. Um, the co-op side, not the corporate side. Uh, from the root, the blacker the content, the sweeter the truth, which <laughs> apparently is part of the network that includes Jezebel and Gizmodo and Deadspin and, and The Onion. <laughs> written by a Nigel Roberts, also in 2019. So I, I save these at the same time, pretty much. So this one is about, we go to the other side of the country. A lot of neighborhoods in West Oakland had 20 to 30 liquor stores and an assortment of fast food joints, but no full-size grocery store. Janetta Kilgore, a worker owner at Mandela Grocery Cooperative, recalled about her hometown 10 years ago. You could barely find this stuff to make a salad within walking distance. Now, this is explicitly like, yeah, we're going to name it Mandela. <laughs> I hope they name it after Winnie Mandela. I'm pretty sure it's uh, <laughs> Nelson. The one who's a communist. <laughs> Brianna Sidney, another Mandela worker owner, said back then there was a 99-cent store that sold groceries. It was the only option for many folks in the Northern California community who didn't have a car. However, the discount store, which is which closed, was never a place to purchase any quality food. So yeah, it's been a really crucial food desert, Sydney added. It went from people not having access to quality food to people not having access to anything at all. Like many other low-income communities, West Oakland is designed by the U.S. designated as a food desert by U.S. Department of Agriculture, an area that lacks enough food retailers that can't carry affordable or nutritious food. Both. That, you know, Whole Foods is nutritious, but expensive mandela marking its 10th anniversary this year and that's kind of when it comes to community projects it's like 10 years is like the major hurdle it's like if you've made it 10 years it also takes 10 years to kind of establish yourself which is why it's like it's tough to think of it in those terms that like if you're going to grow community economy it's in 10-year increments not yearly or quarterly cycles Mandela marking its 10th anniversary this year opened a cooperative grocery store in the community. Its team is eight black or African-American worker owners, provides quality fresh food and opportunities for economic growth. But I don't care about that. 
So what does that mean by provides opportunities for economic growth? For other people or for themselves? I don't get it. Uh, it's one of those success stories in a long history of blacks using cooperative business models to thrive in the face of systemic racism. Cooperative businesses are owned by a group of people, if you didn't know that already. <laughs> Community is the heart and soul. I mean, that's, I, I think it makes sense that I mentioned this as part of the network where it's like this is basic content for basic uh, basic people. <laughs> um Community, I mean, so it has to explain every little thing. Like, oh, do you know what a co-op is, right? It's where there's worker owners, and they own where they work. Uh, okay. In the worker co-op variation at Mandela, the workers are the owners. Some of the earliest informal examples of black co-ops go back to slavery. Jessica Gordon Nibbler, chair of African Studies, Africana Studies Department at John Jay, told The Root, Plantation owners sometimes allowed their slaves to plant their crops on a single plot of land called kitchen gardens, typically located behind slaves. Boy, they're really stretching to tie a co-op in Oakland to uh, slaves being able to have gardens of, the, of their own. You know, just enough food for them to be alive and able to work. Okay, so they put in that context so, of so, like. So, so, so they mean. They're not say, saying it's a good thing. They're just saying like they were allowed to grow enough food to survive because. The, the slave master example. wasn't going to, so this even the slave <laughs> owner wasn't providing them food. So as as right wingers say, oh, they got they got their own uh, they got meals and then board and they didn't have to pay for it. Uh, it's a good deal. <laughs> No, actually, some slave owners didn't even give them food, but they did, they did allow them to use some of their land rent-free. <laughs> <laughs> Former co-ops called mutual aid societies arose later in which groups of African Americans pooled their money to purchase land and tools for collective farms. They also created co-op housing, collective factories, per precursors to modern credit unions. Makes you wonder where they all went could say uh, they were smashed by white supremacy in various ways. I mean, the Tulsa massacre is a version of that, I guess. But calling it Black Wall Street kind of maybe belies the fact, like, were they all co-ops or were they all capitalists just making money or just having their own side economy? Let's see. But they do tie this story to the, a book. Collective courage underscores the danger blacks face for the audacity of starting co-ops. Yes, there is always white capitalist blowback um always they use whatever it means to stop black co-ops from succeeding always and that kind of continues now too co-op members are often lynched and their property burned down mm -hmm. however terror and attacks never killed off the idea because you can't ideas are bulletproof uh indeed uh, <laughs> it would be reborn another era to meet the needs of another generation the 60s began a period of revived collective self-determination also destroyed in the 70s by the war on drugs. So instead of lynching, it's police shootings um, and uh, and uh, requisitioning property. Qualified immunity. So, yeah, police just taking the property and whatever. Because it wasn't just drug selling, though the drug selling was almost required because all their co-ops were destroyed. All, all the things that the Black Panther Party, legitimate things the Black Panther Party were, de were destroyed. So they kind of had to turn to that. Well, the, the, their own government sabotaged them, yes. hunted them down, yeah. tried to destroy them. Bombed. Mm -hmm. There was always a school of thought in the black movement that promoted self-reliance through agriculture and food retail. You know, he's currently aboard. So, you know, it's just, you know, the story is just tying threads together uh, loosely, but, you know, 
it's, it's there. You got uh, Yakini is currently a board member of the Detroit People's Food Co-op, a full-service grocery store slated to open in 2020. It's not open yet. Or it should be open now. Maybe we can check in. Hopefully. It will be part of the Detroit Food Commons, a larger community-developed complex spearheaded by the larger Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which probably runs a lot of... Because there's a lot of vacant land, and there's a lot of community farms that have filled some of those voids. So it's probably the network behind that. So they're taking that produce production and distributing it with this, uh, with this food co-op. So you start by growing the food, and then you build a co-op. Not the other way around. So, so wait. So it's... Or you, do, or you start with the food co-op, and then eventually you just stock everything in there with locally grown stuff. So, so if, if, the, if the supermarket is owned by the workers, that's socialism. But if the same workers own the supermarket but didn't work there, then that would be capitalism. Or, like, it, it, it seems so... It's stakeholder capitalism. <laughs> As they call it now, stakeholder capitalism. Or if I owned my business. Wait, but what do you mean by the workers own? Repeat that. The workers own the co-op. So, so in one model, you have the supermarket. Yes. Where the workers are the owners. Yeah. Am I right? Right. Um, So I'm just saying, what what if those workers were the owners but didn't work there? Then that would. They're not workers anymore. Hmm? They're shareholders. Exactly. Yes. Uh, That's capitalism. And, and thank you. But, 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 but the well, because they're not like, working. The point is they're not working. Now, they could be working somewhere else, and okay. they own a stake, but that's like having money in a community loan trust or something. Okay, so I start my own supermarket. I'm the owner of my own supermarket. I employ people, but I also work at my supermarket. Am I you also work for the bank that gave you the loan, the money. Of we course. all work for the bank. Yes. But, but my, my point is, my point is yes. this division between – it's really a division over ownership. And I think Which some I argue people for time are supposed to, time. to be allowed to own – and other people aren't to be allowed to own. And, and maybe the line is all over the place. But I do think it's odd that if an owner works, mm-hmm. then it, 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 to me, it's, it's actually quite um, it's weird. Because in some circumstances, the owner can work in the company, and that's capitalist. In other circumstances, the owner works in the company, yeah. and that's cool. This is most small business ownership. So there's a kind of maybe a caveat in socialist discourse about like where does entrepreneurial enterprise begin and end and of course like it still exists the point is you allow it and it's just like yeah when a worker when someone starts a business that they're going to work at they are still work. they're just as much of a worker owner the difference is just because you individually start it right if you have any more employee like instead of having employees any new anyone else who works with you they're working with you not for you so they're sharing in the surplus that they are as much of a worker as you are, except maybe that if you work more hours, then you're just compensated based on that, not based on the share of, like, your name's on the D. I do think there's a bit of discrimination or sort of setting apart of owner-workers rather than other owners. And as a society where... Or community owners. Or community owners. Is that what you mean? Well, um... If you have, like... um, Thousands of people putting in $100. It's okay if they have shares and it's an S-Corp or a C-Corp. Mm-hmm. That's capitalism. But then... Pretty if much. It's, so so it, it, it's, a distinction, it's, a, it's a kind of distinction without difference in the sense that... But if you limit it to like si- the size of the shares and the uh, you can only own this many shares so that way no one has like some majority stake. Um, everyone, and, and you limit it to the locality, like you have to live in the city or something. 
But you're still, you're still the owner. Yeah. And, uh, uh, one thing I'd say, I think, is that our focus, our legal focus as a country... Well, this is where just, like, in my revolutionary, like, circles or discourse, that just having co-ops isn't enough because it's not just a question of ownership or who's, you know, who's owning. It's also a question, and this is the Paraconis model that I follow more seriously, is it's also a matter of who has... A, Who's doing the empowering work? Because that's the division of labor that's kind of more important. Because you could have ownership models that are completely egalitarian. But if you have a class of people that are doing all the empowering managerial work, then you have a class of, it wasn't manager, I mean, yeah, the PMC or managerial class. But um, I use a different word that I'll have to repeat in my head a few times. But the Soviet Union isn't so much authoritarian as much as it had a class of managers who were in charge. And so that's what makes it undemocratic and not so socialist, uh, or at least not what it could be. And the same goes for any corporation or even co-op, that you always have this committee that has that's doing the, the board or the managerial work, and everyone else is kind of left with, I mean, maybe they could be doing some empowering work in their sector, but they're not... There, there needs to be a balance in the jobs is is the paraconist kind of thing. To be participatory in the economy it, uh, requires that classlessness isn't just a matter of everyone making the same money or having the same stake in a business. It's uh, the equality comes in in how what kind of work you're doing or that the work is not just compensated, but there's a balance in the empowering versus disempowering work that – and the, that if the people who are really compensated are the ones that are doing the really disempowering work where it's just mining, you know, it's, it's, it's dirty, it's risky. They're the ones paid the most. The people who are doing creative work, they'll be paid something, but, and it's also very empowering. Um, but a miner isn't doing empowering work. It's very important work, um, but it's not so empowering. Or like if it's in a workplace, the idea of a work balance is that everyone's doing a little janitorial stuff. So one person isn't just the janitor who has no empowering work, but everyone is doing a little bit of the cleanup, and everyone's doing a little bit of the accounting. Everyone or, becomes or, multi-skilled. Or the janitor can have the job as janitor and be treated like we need the place that we're living, working in clean. Like it's, it's, I, I, I might approach it from saying no, janitorial work. Sure, but that creates it, it, class it, division. That's, it's just the recognition that that, it, that doesn't create class it, division. It counts as class division if you, are, if you um, pay the janitor inferiorly compared to everyone else. It counts as the class discrimination if only one class of people are put into those jobs. That's only if money is political power and speech. If, if you have a polity that, where maybe that isn't the case, or because it shouldn't be. Yes, in the United States, money then, is speech. Then it, it, the, the pay rate isn't, what, isn't everything. It is everything in America because money is political power and speech. But if that wasn't the case, hypothetically, then then you got to consider more than just because that's the case in say the Soviet uh, the socialist state, let's say, because you can't just pay more to have more political power. I, I'm not sure I understand. Um, in terms of like oh, like the janitor, for example, lobbying yeah. government. Yeah, and there's no or, or doing an advertising campaign to make everyone agree with you. Or, or to influence everybody into agreeing with you. Okay, uh, um, I see what you're saying. Uh, which happens in our society all the time. So, but there are different ways to go about it. 
But at the end, it has to end up being, which is why I talk about competence. At the end, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's not so much. The most important thing is how the pudding tastes. And it's important that the how menu the is food. fine. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's important the menu is fine, the measuring is fine. Maybe the right chef is there. All that's great. But if you have the right chef and the right measurings and the right ingredients and the pudding doesn't taste well, then it, it doesn't work. So uh, my focus is more a bit on competence. And there are different ways to approach it different places. That's true. But I, but I do feel, as a society, we're very – the most important right is property. And I feel like – Especially in American politics. Yes. Because the, the, America was founded – you can say it's founded on slavery while well, holding property, really. It's The American conception of freedom is property ownership. Yes. So as far as American politics concerned, socialism – American socialism style, American style, uh, or socialism with American characteristics, is a socialism that guarantees that everyone is an owner of something, whether it be their job, their home, uh, or their their polity, their municipality. So, but since we never had policies that actually do any of that, even I mean, the New Deal, and that's the thing about social democrat stuff, where like it kind of the expanding home ownership. Let's just make mortgages really easy so people can buy their own homes right this did expand home ownership and it kind of quashed left-wing thinking as well but it did kind of get closer at least for whites because it was only for whites the 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 dream of home ownership but here's the catch owning a ranch on a lot you know a a 90 foot by 30 foot lot doesn't seem to guarantee you that much freedom. And the idea that land ownership and the, the exploitation of it is what guarantees freedom is dependent on there being an infinite amount of land for people to own, which is not, which was kind of the case when you had a continent, continent that you could uh, fill in and, and, or, or people to massacre. But that's not really there anymore. Um, but that's Careful. cool. But that's kind of why... We might find someone else to massacre. You never know. <laughs> right. And that's why the billionaires are going to space. Because that's where there's more land to own. Um, that's where you can be free. I mean, that's why I say, like, seek out your new life on the out, uh, out, Outer Rim Colonies. That will be the next manifest destiny. <laughs> and, and as far as the, the rhetoric is concerned, it is. That's where the freedom is now. The space. If you're hating on space, you're hating on America. You're hating on the ability to be free. Because uh, there's no land left here, you know, uh, unless we do the, um, the the Lex Luthor thing and make more, <laughs> uh, whatever. And it's a bad model for freedom. So, I mean, it's part of the leftist project to kind of undermine all of that thinking, to point out just how based in that land ownership equals freedom or ownership is what's imp- most important when it comes to being free. And have your own autonomy. That's based on manifest destiny, racist, imperialist malarkey. Or, or it's based in it. Like, it's it's tied into it. And specifically, for our culture in America, some people are allowed to be owners and others not. And I mean it even today. So, mm-hmm. back to my example. So, the worker owners aren't actually capitalists. They don't actually own. They're kind of like fake owners, if that, if that makes any sense. And my point is, sure, they are full owners, but we don't treat them like full owners. Our system doesn't treat them like full owners because the system is not designed to support worker ownership. 
But yeah. worker ownership almost sounds like because uh, look, owning a business like, doesn't make you a capitalist. It's kind of how you're using your your property. You know, are you exploiting it? Are you creating a surplus and then you reinvest the surplus? It's like following a certain process. And if you delink that process by having a nonprofit model or a worker first model or or ecological model, then you, yeah, you're not you're doing something that isn't capitalism. There are many ways of not being capitalist. Well, the, 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 I, I hate to give so much ground to extreme fetishization and call that capitalism. I feel like uh -huh. just, just like, I don't know, Cuba versus... I don't mean to give it ground either. I just lack maybe a clear, concise way of talking about it. But maybe that's what you can help me with. Well, I was going to say I shouldn't have used Cuba. But, for example, Cuba and Denmark. Mm -hmm. you know, they're kind of both socialist countries. I guess you could call Cuba communist. But suffice it to say, um, they're different countries. You know, um, Very different. We say capitalist, and we think there's one you know, meaning from God. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's all the same thing. That It's uh, the same in every uh, culture. And every, yeah. it, it, it plays out differently. Um, and uh, I think, there's some similar factors, but it's also... Yes. And, uh, but, but, but with, with respect to with respect to um, here in uh, us, you know, here in America, I do feel like, like you said, so, so your definition is if I use if the owner uses the surplus or the benefits or profits and reinvests in community, that's that's sort of your definition of uh, of not a invest in the more capital. Like there's there's accumulation of it, and it's not just, not just reinvestment that it's held onto um, because it's then you're risk averse with it or something. Very again, going down the simplistic route, there is a ton of different thinking and lots of ink written about a better way of explaining. Like, and maybe even in other left wing debates, trying to define these terms. Now, as far as this this article is concerned, it's just going over some blacklet co op food co ops that exist. One's in Brooklyn called the Central Brooklyn Food Co-op. Mm -hmm. They funded, uh, they used a crowdfunding campaign to raise the 50 grand Very nice. um, to lease the store. So they're renting it. Uh, so they don't own the property, but they're leasing. Well, they own the business. Sure. And the business is a, is a kind of property. Yes. Yeah. Well, but actually, if, if the business can't do anything with it, I mean, how much is it worth? Oh, co co businesses rent space all the time. It, 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 it's, it's That's fun. not what I mean. I just mean, like, if you don't have anything, what do you have? Well, they, they own the business, no? The work Is it worker-owned? Yes, that's the point. It's another co-op. And Yukini uh, is on the leadership team of a national black food and justice alliance, which I guess is nationwide. So they're, they're maybe, you know, they're, they're, there's organizations that create, uh, that give, that help others start such food co-ops. Uh, we want to create a whole ecosystem of food, and it's not just about consumption, but also supporting other people who are in the food economy, making sure black folks are at the center of it. Racialist. Uh, reaching the 10-year mark. Shouldn't it be worker? You know, just worker, any kind of worker. How are you supposed to build some interracial solidarity, huh? But anyway, your community first, whatever. Reaching the 10-year mark, as Mandela did, is no easy task. The road is littered with failed attempts. That was the case with the Renaissance Community Co-op in Greensboro, North Carolina, closed in January just two years after opening its doors to the community. Part of the stated reasons for its failure was that many black people in the community simply didn't support the store, despite not having a major grocery store in the area since 1998. So that's odd. They opened a grocery store where there no, weren't any others, but they still didn't get enough patronage. This is where maybe you... 
our food co-op in our area, like they, they have, um, we have things where like anyone who invests a hundred dollars, so that also keeps the money flowing. You volunteer hours, which also kind of keeps the necessary amount of employees they need down. Right. And, uh, and we get discounts in return. So that's our model. There was a, there was a food co-op in Troy and they didn't last that long, but they were also renting their space. And the rent was probably too high. But again, it's like... The rent is too malarkey high? Is too damn high. <laughs> too malarkey high. And really, uh, if the Green Party doesn't get its um, line back, which I'm not too confident in, but we'll see, and I will try to do my part, by the next term, when I run for office again, for council, I guess, I guess I'll be... It's two years or four years? No, I'll, I'll find out. Maybe it's two years. I'll... I'll run on a rent is too damn high uh, line. Even in Albany, rent is too damn high? Yes. <laughs> no, it's, well, it doesn't have to be housing rent, but it is. Uh, it is absolutely commodified, and it uh, hurts everybody. Okay. Oh, damn. Okay, yeah, we're definitely out of time. So I'll, I'll do the uh, ending music uh, and the podcast version. Otherwise, uh, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories and topics you'd like to hear discussed. Send me any of the ideas on social media. That means Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. Um, this program is made as a part of Independent Community Radio. You can also email. Uh, it's just three lefts at Gmail. Uh, support us on, uh, let's see, LibrePay or Patreon. Uh, Patreon or LibrePay. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps. Uh, da, 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 but the full archive is also there at uh, w, uh, 3lefts.news. That's 3lefts.news. So uh, keep rad. Practice any projects we talked about. Uh, think well about this. Keep waving the flags of the three lefts. So is it left, left, left? Or is it the number three and left? Three lefts. So left, left, left. And that makes a right. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>